You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Wow. That's like way better than usual. That's cool. Well, we're talking about suffering today. So I'm glad you came with a positive vibe. Um, if you're just joining us, we've been in the book of 1 Peter since about August. Uh, as he's talking about being foreigners and exiles, living as the people of God in a non-sympathetic culture around you, which I think we can uh, attest to here in San Francisco. Um, and last week, we started a mini-series. Dave started part one of a mini-series, mini-series on suffering. And uh, it was a great biblical perspective, meta, kind of big, broad view philosophically of what, how we look at suffering, how cultures look at suffering, what the Bible says about suffering. And there were three takeaways. Uh, so this is a review from last week. This should be no new information. Uh, the first is that we're an Epicurean culture, especially in San Francisco. We love pleasure. We love food. We love drinks. We love entertainment. We love sex. We want all of it. Give it to us. We're down with that, whatever it is. We, we are a culture that thrives on that. But with that, we hate suffering. As much as we love pleasure, we hate Suffer. We hate to talk about it, hate to be in it, hate to think about it. The second point is that there's a reality of suffering in, in all people. Whether you're a believer in God or not, faith or not, you will experience some level on the spectrum of suffering. It's a reality for all of us. And we finish on a point that said the promise of God is not to alleviate all suffering. That, 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 that is not what God came to do, and not even to explain why suffering happens, but God's promise is that he is with us. I will be with you in your suffering. This is all that we talked about last week. It gave a great uh, platform to dive in today and drill down a little bit more into what Peter's talking about when he's speaking to the early church about suffering, and he, he gets real specific. And he begins to unpack this for us. So that's what we're going to read today. You can join me in 1 Peter chapter 4. You can turn there right now. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. I'm reading out of the NIV. And this is what it says. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And ushers will bring those, those down. Bring them to you. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. And this is what it says. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their recklessness, in their wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living 
and the dead. Fun stuff. Let's read. Let's pray together. God, I just confess to you, um, it is hard to talk about suffering, Lord. Lord, you know my heart, and it has been a struggle to get to this pulpit this morning. I think that says something, God, both about my heart, but all of us, that um, there's a lot of resistance to this. God, so I ask humbly, Lord, um, that you would meet us in this place. Lord Jesus, um, what do I have to bring? Um, Very little. So may it be a work of your, your power and your spirit, Lord God meeting us, your people, in this place for your glory, that we might walk into what you have for us because we trust you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, um, Peter starts this section of scripture with a word phrase that we should catch right away. Uh, We've talked about this in the past, that um, when we see this word phrase, it should spark something in us. And that word phrase is, therefore, Therefore, and when we see the word therefore, we should ask ourselves a question. The question is, hey, you guys listen. What is the therefore, therefore? Was it on the screen? Oh, that's not fair. I was so proud of you guys for like a second. What is the therefore, therefore? When we see the word therefore, what we, what we should think is that God is He's reorienting something. He's saying that there, there is something that I, the, that God has done, that Christ has done, a work of God that shapes something, the, the way we are, the way we relate to him, the way we see the world. He, he changes it. And then out of that thing, that being, the, the way that, that God has shaped and structured that reality of who he is, what he's done, it then moves us into a way of being or doing. This is the indicative before the imperative that we've talked about before, right? That there's something that God does, who he is, that shapes and forms then the way we are and the way we relate to him. The best way I can think to explain this is uh, Exodus chapter 20, that uh, God gives the 10 commandments. We've all heard them. We know about them, the 10 commandments. But the way God delivers them is really important. Uh, It's a therefore moment. Uh, God says uh, to the people of Israel, very clearly, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's where he starts. And then he says, because of all that, here's how you live as my people. So you see what God is doing there. He's saying that um, you are my people. You don't live in Egypt anymore. You don't belong to them. You're not in slavery. You're free people. You're my people and I am your God. And because of all of that, the indicative, all of that, now this is how you be those people. No killing, no adultery, no stealing, no, you know, all of these things, all the Ten Commandments. He lays it out for them. This is true here in 1 Peter in this phrase, therefore, uh, Peter's pointing to God has done something. There's something that's been done, and it directs us in how to be God's people in the light of that. So what has God done in this portion of Scripture? It says, and a lot of commentary people say that this this sentence should be restructured. That it should say, instead of, therefore, Christ suffered in the body, 
arm yourselves with the same attitude. It should actually say, Christ suffered in the body. Indicative. Therefore, arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ. See, the, our, our indicative is that Christ has suffered. Christ suffered in the body. And if that's what has been done, if that's who God is, that's the indicative, then it should then move us into a way of being, relating to him. So the next question we should ask is, what does Christ's suffering, what does that indicative mean in terms of how we live as followers of Christ? Christ suffered in the body. What does that mean for us to follow as followers of Christ? So to understand Christ's suffering, uh, we want to take a really serious look at how Christ lived his life, particularly how Christ suffered. Now, this could be a really long sermon, okay? Even Chris Rock knows that Christ suffered, right? If you listen to, if you watch SNL, the opening monologue a couple weeks ago, he goes into a whole thing about like Christmas is Jesus' birthday. Jesus was the least materialistic guy in the whole world, right? Even Chris Rock knows that. Like he suffered. If Chris Rock knows that, then, then all of us are in some way, I'm sure, aware of that, that Christ, he suffered socially, rejected, alienated, persecuted. Christ suffered emotionally. We get the picture of Gethsemane, the garden, right before he's going to be crucified. And he's just racked with anxiety and fear to the point he is sweating drops of blood, the intensity that he's standing in. But Peter gets more specific. He is, he is talking specifically about Christ's suffering in the body. Christ's physical suffering. And although even there, there are many ways Christ suffered physically. The climax of Christ's suffering happens on the cross. This really intense and meaningful way. So we want to look at how Christ suffered on the cross. What actually happened there. But before, we want to look at why Christ suffered on the cross. Do you ever think about this? Why did Christ suffer on the cross? We, and we understand this in a big, in a big way, a theological way. There had to be an atonement for sin, right? God had to restore us to himself. There had to be a sacrifice that, that paid for all of it. And so Christ goes and, and he does that, and we are restored to God through the blood of Christ for those who believe. We know that. But I'm talking about the man of Christ, like the person of Christ, like who walked through this suffering. What? Why? Why does he do this? What is his motivation? Do you ever think about that? I mean, we, throughout history, we have heroes, right? I mean, people who do amazing things. And, and Hollywood is built on, on, on this concept. Like, the hero lays his life down for a cause bigger than himself. Uh, or, or for someone he loves. Or, right, we love every story. Your favorite novel is based on this in some way. The, the movies are based on this. My favorite movie is based on this. My favorite movie is Braveheart. All right? I mean, <laughs> Tommy Boy is a close second. But Braveheart's number one for sure. Right, William Wallace, I mean, he's a potato farmer, right? And he's a nobody, and then he, like, uh, gets caught up in this, this cause for his nation, and he goes and he dies this, like, torturous death for a cause bigger than himself. Ah, freedom! You know, like, we're just, 
yeah, William Wallace. Okay, we can get behind that. All right, Titanic. Jack is in love with Rose and like they're gonna buck the class system and live for love and on this adventure and then the thing goes down. Jack's in the water, Rose is not. If you look, there's gotta be enough room for Jack on that thing. Like cuddle or like spoon or something, you know? Like there's, you can make it work. Jack gives his life for Rose, freezes to death. Jack dies for love. Yes, we can get behind that. Okay, why does Christ die? What's Christ's thing as a man in his, in his humanity that he's walking through? It's not sexy, you guys. It, I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's profound. Christ lives and walks this life out of complete obedience. It's this life of obedience to the Father. I, I mean, he says it all through. It's the centerpiece of his life and of his ministry. It is just, I, I say what the Father tells me to say. I, I do this because this is what the Father's commanded me to do. It's just this life of obedience that Christ lives in to the full. And it's, it's amazing. Never has a man died such a horrific, brutal death out of obedience. That's why Christ died. And obedience is a tricky thing, right? I was even, I'm just honest, this is a hard sermon to put together, right? Uh, I'm suffering and obedience and like, who wants to talk about those things? And so I'm sitting there like, God, would you give me like a picture? Would you give me something that kind of like is obedient? Like what is obedience? And this is what the first thing I thought of. Do you see? I see this sticker everywhere. And it's a clothing company. And it's like hung its name on like the punk rock skater culture. Like that to obey is to be oppressed. Right, it's a picture of Andre the Giant. If anybody knows who Andre the Giant is, it's like this domineering like presence forces you to obey. So buck the system. No, we're not going to obey. Right, like that. That's the first thing that came into my mind, and I think that embodies a lot of what our culture thinks about obedience. We don't want obedience. Who wants to be obedient? My kids don't want to be obedient. In fact, we want just the opposite. We want independence, right? We are an independent people. We'll fight for that. I mean, we have a declaration of that. We are independent people. It's in our DNA. And it's in our nature. You guys, it's in our, our nature. I'm not joking. Like, as a father, I know this. Okay, when you have kids, like, when they first come out, they're just this, like, this blob of joy and, like, cuteness and like even their poops are cute and like everything's just all oh, just love and cute. And, and then they're, they're growing and things and you're trying to put like boundaries around them and like there comes this point where you say, don't touch this because you will hurt it or it will hurt you, one, or, one way or the other. And you walk away and I remember this with each of my kids, it's like this heartbreaking moment where they do the thing you told them not to do. And they didn't just do it, but it's like they pick it up and they're like, what? 
what, what are you going to do about it? And it's like, no, what, what happened to the, the, the blob of joy? You're not the blob of joy anymore. Like, I still love you, but like, what happened? It's, it's not in our nature. It's not in our nature to embrace this. That's why this is so incredible that Christ lives out this his whole life. Everywhere he goes, he's led, and he walks in obedience. Everything he says is told to him, and he says it in obedience. He walks this road faithfully, step by step, all the way to the cross. A life devoted to obedience. Christ was serious about obedience. So we, as his followers, should be serious about obedience. So now let's look at how Christ suffered. This is super interesting to me. Um, I have read the crucifixion account hundreds of times, hundreds. I've taught on it, right? I've studied it. Um, But it wasn't until this week that I saw, like, two really amazing things that happen in this crucifixion story to prepare for your minds to be blown. Here's the deal. Christ suffered in the body, right? That's what First Peter said. Christ suffered in the body. But throughout this story, Christ does not disconnect from his suffering. He suffers, but he does not disconnect himself from the suffering. What do I mean by this? Listen, I ride a scooter all over the city, okay? Don't judge me. I ride a scooter to get to work and get around and everything. Several weeks back, I crashed on the scooter, and it was bad. And it, I went, it was in an intersection, and I got thrown off the bike, and, like, my hand got busted, and my, my sh- I hit my shoulder on the ground and my back, and I had, like, road rash and stuff, and it was not good. It, it was ugly, and I was beat up. And as soon as I got home, the first thing I asked for was medication. Give me something to separate me from what I am experiencing right now. My body is not feeling right. Give me something to relieve it. And that's natural, right? You wouldn't, you're not judging me, hopefully, for that. I wouldn't judge you for that, okay? Uh, it's okay. But check out what happens on the cross. This is, this is Matthew chapter 27, verse 34. It says, They offered Jesus wine to drink, Mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused the drink. Christ is on the cross. Now, at this point, he has been beaten at the hands of his jailers. He has been whipped with a cat of nine tails, which is this wicked uh, weapon with uh, these lashes on it that have bone and rock affixed to it that are meant to literally tear the flesh off a human body. And they give him just the amount of lashes that won't kill him. Uh, and then he carries the beam, the cross uh, beam, up to where he's to be crucified. He's nailed physically to this through the hands and the feet, through flesh and bone. And then he's set, erected onto this cross to die slowly. He's been through all of that. We don't know how long he's been on the cross at this point. But he's got to be close to death. And, and here's what happens. They bring him this wine mixed with an herb, with gall. And, and, and here's what this means. Uh, commentator explains it to us. According to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to excruciating pain. 
When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, the place he was crucified, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, with gall. But he refused it. Choosing to endure with full consciousness the suffering appointed for him. Christ is suffering. He suffers in the body, but he doesn't disconnect from his suffering. Why? Well, the story's not done yet. Later on, he's offered another kind of wine, a sour wine. This was a wine that Roman soldiers used to, to drink. They said it was more refreshing than water. Uh, it would rejuvenate the body and so they could march on longer. And it says in, in Matthew 27, a little bit farther down, that he's offered this wine. But those who are offering it to him are not trying to bring him relief. They're actually trying to prolong his suffering. This is what it says. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So what's going on? Christ is on the cross. And, and as long as he's on the cross, he's having this dialogue with God the Father. He's praying and, and he's crying and uh, you know, he's, he's having this, this conversation. He's talking about Elijah at different points uh, of this, this narrative. And these guys are like, this guy's a miracle worker. We've seen him do things. Let's keep him alive longer. And just, man, what if Elijah shows up? That would be cool. Give him some of the sour wine. So look what's happening here. The wine that would have numbed the pain, Jesus rejects. The wine that prolonged the pain, Jesus accepts. Why? Why is this important? Remember, we're looking for the indicative. Like what, what has been done? What, re, what reshapes who we are and points us in how to be? This is why this is important. The suffering that Christ endured on the cross was a living sacrifice, an embodied sacrifice, right? So up till history, the people of God, they would put the sin on an animal and put it on an altar and it would be put to death there and, and so would their sins. They'd be separated from it. There's no separation here. This is a living embodied sacrifice. Christ is feeling everything to the very drop. All of the brokenness, all of the despair, all of the fear, all of the loneliness, everything. Without numbing the pain, without running away, without being rescued, he sits in it. He just sits in it. Crying out to God. This is a man. You guys, we, we know that Christ was God. Christ was a man fully as well. And he endured this very real suffering. So what are we, what are we to do? How should this form our thoughts, our being as Christ followers? Peter says we're to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. So buckle down, church. <laughs> this is going to be a hard thing to hear. But I believe this is what God has for us today. When Peter writes this letter, the early church is suffering. We know this because Peter refers to it constantly in his letter to them. 
They are suffering. But we don't know how. We don't get any clue how until we get to this passage here, verses 2 through 4 in chapter 4. As a result, they, those who follow Christ, do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God, obedience. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. It sounds like the mission after the World Series. (laughs) Sounds like the mission like every Saturday. They, the people who you used to do this with, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. The early church is suffering here. It's real. This should be a reality check for us in San Francisco. This should reorient us a little bit. This is a huge message for the church in America. Jesus Following Jesus never guarantees your comfort. Would you hear that? Following Jesus has nothing to do with your comfort. Following Jesus does not guarantee wealth, that your startup will be blessed, that you will get that funding or that promotion or that dream position. Following Jesus doesn't guarantee that. Following Jesus doesn't guarantee a successful love life, that you will find your soulmate, if that's even a thing. Following Jesus does not guarantee popularity. You guys, you may not even be liked, much less loved, by friends, by coworkers, even by family, when you follow Christ. That's real. You need to hear that. Count the cost. It is true. In fact, it's just the opposite of all of these, this blessing prosperity kind of idea. It's just the opposite. Peter says uh, we should not be surprised as followers when we experience suffering. You should not be surprised by it. Here's why. God is not, hear this, please. God is not primarily concerned with your happiness or your comfort. He cares about your obedience. God is not primarily concerned about your happiness or your comfort. He is concerned about restoring us, restoring this that he has created back to the way it was intended. He will not stop until that's done. That is what God cares about. And the early church experienced this. They suffered in this. Peter's addressing two different levels of suffering with the, the early church. And, and it's as applicable for us as it was for them. So please hear this. When you abstain from sin, drunkenness, lust, orgies, idolatry, all the things and more, we could add shopping, entertainment, Right? Popularity. When you abstain from the obsession of these these things, you will suffer. 
There's an inherent suffering when we don't get to do the things that bring us pleasure. That's real. That's one level of suffering that Peter's alluding to. Secondly, there's a very real possibility that you will be rejected, that you will be alienated, you would even experience abuse for following Christ. It's a very real possibility. I want to remind us of a quote from last week because I think it's dead on in what we're talking about. It's from Karen Jobes, a commentary, and she says this. Even those Christians who do not suffer persecution for the faith are called to the suffering of self-denial. Sin is often thought of as being motivated by the temptation of pleasure. But perhaps the real power of sin lies in the avoidance of pain and suffering. It is better to suffer unfulfilled needs and desires than to sin. It is not what... Uh, Isn't that what self-denial means? Jesus links self-denial with following in his footsteps when he said, those who would be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For instance, isn't the temptation to lie often an attempt to save face rather than face the consequences of the truth? Isn't the temptation to cheat on an exam an unwillingness to suffer the loss of reputation or other consequences that failure might bring? Isn't sexual sin often the alternative to suffering by living with deep emotional, physical needs unmet? According to Peter, the pain and suffering that self-denial brings is a godly suffering that is better than yielding to sin. Ouch. That's a hard word. If you've walked this road in following Christ, in trying to be obedient to who he is, then you can identify what Job's is saying here. Sin is, is pleasurable. Sin feels good. The devil's not an idiot. It is what we desire so often. It brings us pleasure. It numbs pain. It distracts us from tough suffering. And we need to recognize, real honestly and soberly together, that to abstain from sinning, it brings a type of suffering. When you don't get an out, when you don't get that thing, it brings a kind of of suffering. Abstinence of all kinds is a kind of suffering. No one taught me this in church. In youth group, abstinence was like the holy grail. If you want to be a real follower of Jesus, the youth pastor would say, you want to be a real follower of Jesus, don't sleep with your girlfriend. Stop smoking weed. Uh, Don't look at porn. Don't drink at parties with your friends. Why? Because your life will be better. Bull! (laughs) That's not true. 
It almost never was true. Come on. And we know this. Listen, you know this. Honestly, there is a reality. Let's get like down to the nitty-gritty. Like there's a reality that to live in sexual purity in a city like San Francisco will cause a level of suffering to you. It's true. There's a reality that limiting the number of drinks you're going to have with your friends, with your coworkers, is going to bring a level of suffering. It's true. For so long, the church has said, don't do these things because they're bad things. They're bad things. Don't do that. Or if you go and do these things, you are really going to regret it the next day. And sometimes that's true. But what the church doesn't, what we haven't told you, is that, yes, you may feel like crap the next morning after your night out. But there's a real honest truth that you will feel like crap the night of when you go home alone. You will feel like garbage when you leave the party early or don't go at all. It's true. There's a level of suffering here. But I want to hopefully bring us to a place where we can see that just not doing things is like just living in the commandments, trying to be the people of God without remembering who you really are. See, there's a truth, a bigger indicative here of something that's been done for you that actually makes you who you are and then it shapes how you be. So if you have been living this life of like, I'm just trying not to sleep around. I'm really trying not to. Uh, I'm just trying not to drink as much. I'm really trying not to, because I believe if I, if I just resist those things, then I, I will be, I'll be closer to Christ. I will be a Christ follower. You've got it backwards, okay? You are on the treadmill to nowhere. You keep doing that as long as you want. You'll be exhausted. You'll be discouraged. The indicative says that that's not who you are anymore. That you've actually been bought. Uh, that all of this stuff has been paid for. How do we know that? <laughs> because 1 Peter says Christ suffered in the body. And he didn't numb it. And there is not anything that you are experiencing today or that you've been walking through the last month or year or what you see on the horizon that terrifies you, there's nothing in that that Christ can't identify with. He didn't numb it. He didn't shortchange it. He drank it, all of it, completely. And he knows it. So what would it be for us to, to take on the attitude of Christ, like Peter is saying, it's a radical shift. Um, if we were to sit in our suffering, 
the way Christ sat in his suffering. Why would we do that? I mean, it doesn't seem to have any benefit, does it? Like, why sit in it? Can't we just be done with it? I ran across this really interesting thing this week. Um, I'm not a video game guy. Uh, Sometimes I wish I was. Um, But I read about, I read this article about a video game called That Dragon Cancer. It's a weird game. Uh, So, so it was written by a, a video game developer and, and his wife, and um, they recognize that all of the game industry is a fantasy world created that we might escape, right? I, I mean, it's a place to go to be a warrior or like a special ops guy or like whatever. It's a fantasy world to go escape to. And, and they were going through something they couldn't escape from. They had a son named Joel five years old, who has terminal cancer. And there's no getting away from it. You can't escape that. I mean, he constantly needs something. And so they created this game called That Drug Cancer with this explicit purpose of forcing the player to remain present in the suffering. Why, why would anybody do that? Well, this, this remarkable thing happened. There's a write-up on it uh, as the game's coming out. And, and, and the premise of it is this. You are literally walking day-to-day with your child who has cancer to the hospital at home um, through treatments. Uh, the child cries and weeps and wants water, something, because they're thirsty. And you try to give it to them, and they just vomit it all up. And, and they scream and cry because they're still thirsty. And you want to give them something, but you know whatever you give them, is just gonna, they're going to vomit it up again and be in more pain. There's no getting out of it. And they create this world where you just sit present in it. That sounds terrifying, doesn't it? Listen to what people said. Uh, They go to the game expo, and there's all these different fantasy games and everything, and they're right in the middle of it, and people go, and they begin to experience this game. And the responses are, I am so grateful for a chance to experience this. This this experience was heart-wrenching, and it left me with so much hope. This experience opened caverns up in my heart, in my life that I just hadn't ever gone to before. And I feel more alive, more human than I have in a long time. Guys, and this is absent of Christ. This is just people sitting in suffering. So what would that mean for us? And I got to be honest with you. I got to this point of the sermon and I really thought, let's get practical Let's talk about how we pray through suffering. Uh, Let's talk about how we live in community together in suffering. Uh, Let's talk about journaling, how you can put your your suffering into words. And all of that stuff is good. And you can do that. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. Like God just really pressed on me. He said, stop 
looking for the imperative. Stop looking for the thing to do. So that only leaves us with the indicative. What's been done. Here's what I want to leave you with. As long as you've been following Christ, or maybe you haven't at all, and this all sounds foreign to you, but as you begin this journey or wherever you are on it, what if, what if you actually believe that Christ on that cross experienced everything you could experience? He took it fully. He didn't resist it. And then he takes that down into the pit of hell and he leaves it there. He buries it. He defeats it. And then he comes back, redeemed, resurrected, a new body, who he actually fully was. If that's the truth, if that is the indicative, then what does that mean for you? Could it be that Christ wants to meet you in the place of your fear and say, I remember that. And I took that and I went down to the deepest, darkest places and I I defeated it and I left it there. So let me take that from you. That you might actually walk into being this full person that God intended you to be. What if that, that doubt, what if that loneliness, whatever that, that brokenness, that abuse, whatever it is, what if you allowed Christ to meet you there and you just sit in it and you be honest and you dialogue with him the way Christ did on the cross and you cry to him and he meets you there. He says, I remember that. I remember that one. Let me take that from you. Because I took it. And I defeated it. And what if you could experience being fully human, being fully you, in a way you never could have without Christ, in a way that sin tries to promise you it will make life bearable. Life can be more than bearable, life can be new, life can be free. You can be more of who you are than you ever have been before. Let's pray for that.